We acknowledge the traditional landowners of this country. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. We would particularly like to acknowledge the traditional landowners of the land on which we stand. I am on Wiradjuri land. Tam stands on the land of the Dharawal people and Laurie on the land of the Tarabal people. We express our great gratitude in sharing this land with you. Remember our disclaimer, materials and content in this podcast are intended as general information only and should not be substituted for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Hey everyone, it's just Lori. I just want to tell you about two things just before we jump into today's episode. One is about the pelvic health community. So it's an online education platform for pelvic floor physios. It was previously known as the Physiotherapy Clinic Education. Now they are the pelvic health community, but it's absolutely brilliant. The new platform has an app that you can use Um, It's a paid membership for education content. It's a beautiful community. There's lots of people being able to discuss various topics. There's over 35 hours of uploaded professional development videos that are continually added each year. So I think you get 35 every year. Monthly live in-services, monthly live Q&As, weekly uploaded video content on a range of topics. I'm gonna put the link in the show notes. Come join us there. It's so much fun, slightly addictive. The other one that I wanted to remind people about or tell you if you haven't heard about it is the PB conference that is in Brisbane this year, Friday, 27th of October, 2023. It's all about endometriosis. This is for any health professional interested in this area. There are gynecologists, doctors, physios, dietitians, nutritionists, sonographers, There are so many amazing speakers that are going to be here. It's at the Howard Smith Wharves, which is an absolutely beautiful space. I, again, will also include the link to that. But we're talking about understanding the fundamentals and symptoms of endo, current management strategies for endo, the future of women with endometriosis. And that was one of the best conferences that they put on last year. So it is going to be a cracker. So everyone, come join us. All right, now I'll let you listen. have you met michelle yet no no i have not well you are in for a treat so i hear (laughs) no pressure laurie thanks there's never (laughs) any pressure oh my god i forgot how beautiful your accent is oh i love your (laughs) accent (laughs) so tam this is michelle michelle this is tam oh my god and joe is probably in the car too and she's just joining us as well (laughs) she could be hi michelle i'm joe (laughs) Hi, nice Joe. How are you? <laughs> and Tam. So it's like a girl gang. And I don't know if, I don't I'm know. I'm going to put them on the spot if they've gone back to listen. Because, Michelle, this is your third time here. Yes, of course. It is. Third time lucky. <laughs> yes, third time lucky. Can you hear us, Joe? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yay! Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. We're all here. So um, Michelle is in the car because she's got painters at her house and she's hiding at the library. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) That's what you got to do what you got to do. That's the most important thing. And the the internet gods are, are smiling upon us and I get to hang out with you guys. So it's all good. As we speak, where are you? Because you're always traveling. Are you at home now? I am at home in the middle of rural Ireland at the minute. Um, okay. So I was watching Bad Sisters, which was like an amazing series. I don't know. If, did you watch it oh at all? Oh my God. Yeah, I loved it. <laughs> okay. So is that where you live? Well, that's about kind of 90 minutes from where I live. That's set up in Dublin. So oh. I am, if Dublin is on the East Coast, yeah. uh, Galway would be on the West Coast. I'm kind of in the middle. So the, literally okay. the middle of nowhere. Yeah, but oh. I think driving from one end to the other is like, what, an hour or something? <laughs> well, it's about, you could do Dublin to Galway probably in about two, two and a half hours. So that'd be East Coast to West Coast. And then yeah, North to South, you could probably do in six or seven hours. Oh, my God. Well, geez, that show was just amazing. I absolutely loved it. And I thought of you and Grania the whole time. I'm like, oh, this is where they live. Actually, then I did. <laughs> then I Googled where Grania was and I'm like, oh, no, that's not where I thought it was at all. <laughs> Gronya's in, uh, yeah, Gronya's in Northern Ireland, which is 
on the island of Ireland, um, but is part of the UK. So yeah, there was a lot of confusion that, that I was like, okay, I'm not even going to get into that. But anyway, that is not what we are here to talk about today. It is your third time lucky, third time back. We are going to talk about something we didn't send you any questions on <laughs> because I knew that you would like be amazing with this. And I think it'll be a great conversation because I have zero knowledge. We're talking about Vegas nerve. Um, and um, I mean, there's something with the polyvagal theory. I'm sure that will come up. None of this stuff yeah. that I, I know at all. Um, so Everyone should be familiar with you if they've been listening to this podcast for a while. If not, Michelle's talked about menopause in one, and you've also talked about endometriosis, which is a very old one, which we're going to come back to at some point, but not today. Um, so welcome. Welcome back. Yay. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> so are you good with like not having questions and totally doing this on the fly? Sure. Absolutely. You know, you know, Laura, you know, I'm, I'm nerdy, first of all, Definitely. and you also know that I'm moderately obsessed with things like constipation and gut health. Um, yeah. so it kind of just fits, it fits right into my, my zone of geeking outness. I can't wait. And I was going to say this at the end, but I'm going to say it now because you also have another pod, you have a podcast, you have all these online courses. Now you have a podcast. What is it called? Um, it's called Celebrate Muliebrity with Michelle Lyons because- that's, uh, that's kind of been the name of my business for the past couple of years. And everybody, I'm going to just skip straight ahead to tell you what muliebrity is because everybody's kind of going, what? Yeah, I also. Um, it's I an old just... English word that means the art and state of being a woman. And I think that should be celebrated. Aww. So, Can we just make sure we get the pronunciation right? Can you just say it for us one more time in your beautiful accent that I am going to thoroughly <laughs> Celebrate enjoy Celebrate muliebrity. Muliebrity. There you go. Perfect. We need to practice that one, Tam. Muliebrity. Muliebrity. <laughs> Celebrate Muliebrity. Okay. And you see, you're, you, you know, you're saying it nice and low and slow, and that's increasing your vagal tone. So it's Is very it? apropos of why we're here. So it all oh. it all works together. Oh, you know, we better start with like where the vagus nerve comes from. Is it real? Yeah. What does it do again? <laughs> <laughs> because you know, start us from scratch. <laughs> not not oh, not only is it real, we've got two of them. <laughs> two? What? <laughs> oh my god! I know. Um. So the vagus nerve is one of the cranial nerves. It's the tenth cranial nerve. And sometimes it's referred to as the wandering nerve. So the, the name vagus has the same Latin root as vagrant, you know, uh, because it starts out, it's coming down from the brainstem and it's coming down the side of the neck. It's sending branches to the ear, to the larynx and the pharynx, coming down the side of the neck into the thoracic cavity, branches to the heart, to the lungs, goes underneath the diaphragm and then is sending branches basically to everything down there. You know, the kidneys, the adrenals, the stomach, um, the intestines, down as far as the splenic flexure of the large intestine, even has branches going down as far as the uterus. So it is a well-named wandering nerve um, going down through the body. But I feel like it's one of those things that, admittedly, when I was in university 150 years ago, it was mentioned in passing that we don't really know a whole lot about it. But I really feel with the explosion in interest around gut health um, and how gut health influences mental health and the immune system, I feel like there's been an explosion of interest in the vagus nerve and, and how we can really tap into it to, I suppose, to help people live better, whether that's with persistent pain issues, but also with mental health issues as well, because of course, gut health and mental health are, are very closely linked as well. So it's, it's a fascinating nerve. Um, and it's one of, those, one of those times when, although we're, we're all embracing the concept of a biopsychosocial approach, it is really important that we don't forget the bio here, because if we think about that mm. long winding circuitous path that the vagus nerve takes, it is prone to, you know, if there's stiffness, say, in the neck or in the thoracic spine, that's going to have an impact on, on vagal tone as well. And it's, it's the main part of our parasympathetic nervous system. So it's super important in terms of mood regulation. 
um, which is going to have downstream effects, as we said, on gut health, on hormonal health, on, on all the things. So it's really important that we make friends with the vagus nerve, that we respect it, and we always give it what it wants. What does it want, Michelle? I mentioned that the vagus nerve, it's kind of, it's the main part of our parasympathetic nervous system. Mm. And it's like this information superhighway going between the gut and the brain. So we, we talk a lot about the gut brain axis and the gut brain axis essentially is the vagus nerve. Mm. So what the vagus nerve wants is primarily gut health. It wants a happy, healthy bowel system. It wants you to eat lots of different plants. It wants you to be able to digest and assimilate and eliminate what you don't need. And it's really, it's 80% of the fibers of the vagus nerve are afferent. They're going from the gut up to the brain and then 20% bringing messages back down from the brain. So gut health, you know, we've got some really exciting research going on with people like John Cryan is kind of leading the charge here. But we know that a healthy microbiome is going to facilitate good vagal tone, which is going to put us into that nice parasympathetic rest and digest state. And from that, then, you know, we've got this whole parallel field of research and exploration around polyvagal theory, which is really a nice paradigm for when we're working with people with persistent pain. Before we would even you know, just go near polyvagal theory. The other thing that the vagus nerve really likes is breath work. It likes cervical and thoracic mobility because think of where it's living in the neck and in the, in the thorax particularly. Um, because the vagus nerve, because it's got branches going to both the heart and the lungs as well, we can have this bi-directional conversation with it by literally by changing how we breathe. The vagus nerve is also going to um, have input into our heart rate and heart rate variability has become a good measurement of vagal tone. So when we inhale, our heart rate speeds up a little bit and when we exhale, it slows down a little bit. So we can tap into that relationship, for example, between um, heart rate and the vagus nerve by calming down maybe the stress response, particularly when it's an inappropriate stress response, um, maybe one that's born out of habit or even out of central sensitization. So sometimes it's the simplest things, isn't it, that can have the most effect. Mm. So breath work, range of motion in the, in the neck, in the thorax, slowing the breath down, and then you know dealing with constipation and optimizing bowel health is always a good idea. No matter what we're talking about, it's, it's always a really good idea from a hormonal health, from a mental health perspective, to really make sure that we're, we're eating well, we're having a very plant diverse diet. We know that the, the gold standard is to aim for 30 different plants a week. Um, that's been established as really what we need in terms of optimal microbial diversity. Um, but we also know on the flip side of that, that our stress responses can influence our gut and bowel health. You know, mm. um, I know, this, this might fall under the TMI umbrella, but I know when I'm stressed, I definitely trend more towards constipation. Um, I'm a, I'm a mm. clencher. Um, but I know that lots of other people, when they get stressed, they trend more towards, say, diarrhea and very loose stools. And so it's being able to kind of look at that whole circle and think, OK, well, where can we step in and break that pattern and really start to give people the tools to help themselves calm the system down and develop a little bit of resilience. Can yeah, I ask cool. before we jump to the polyvagal um, piece? So you mentioned obviously that the vagus nerve has a major role in sending messages from our gut back to our brain. How does it link into the enteric nervous system? Yeah, this is really when we're talking about the enteric nervous system, our understanding is kind of evolving from those purely kind of splanchnic nerves that are, yep. are local to it, but it's the communication, the, the big communication information superhighway really between the gut and the brain is the vagus. That's, that's our current understanding of it. I would always think about it or influencing it, obviously, because I'm a physio from the neck and the thorax and the breath work. But then of course you said 85 are afferents, right? So it is yeah. influencing it 
from what you eat. I wouldn't think about 100%. it that way. Yeah, you know? absolutely. I would think eat well, but not mm, that it's going to influence the vagus tone or the vagus nerve. That's cool. 30 different plants. I don't believe that I eat 30 yeah, different plants. It does sound like a lot. And the people yeah. always get a little bit intimidated when I say 30 different plants. But, you know, herbs and spices count you know, nuts, seeds, as well as your ah, vegetables and your fruits, you know, so it's not as intimidating as it sounds. And it's, for me, it's all about progress, not perfection. Currently, like I'm working in, in a, a cancer support center and I see a huge crossover between people who've gone through particularly breast cancer, but also gynae cancer and the development of IBS type symptoms. And what we're starting to see now in the literature is this acknowledgement that IBS, um, I saw one paper and I can't remember the author right now, but he basically said, you know, is IBS irritable bowel syndrome or irritable brain syndrome? Mm. Really looking at the effect of, of mental health and stress on bowel function. And certainly uh, from a cancer rehab perspective, you know, obviously we've got to take into account the effect of chemo and you know, antibiotics and steroids, of course, but the massive stressors mm. that people going through cancer treatment, you know, even when they come out the other side of active treatment, because they haven't maybe resolved that trauma and that stress and that ongoing mm. stress of living after a cancer diagnosis, I see a lot of IBS type presentations going on, but really responsive to, to stress management, to education, but also, and this is the key part that I think maybe has been a little bit of the missing piece, is what we're seeing now in the literature again is this evolution from acknowledging that pain is not just a psychological you know, experience, a psych a, a, an output of the brain, but it is a somatosensory experience. So education, gut health, and movement are mm. really the keys if we're going to start fully embracing um, a path back from persistent pain. And it's it's to really kind of get those three elements working well together um, and to give people a toolbox to do that for themselves so that they can self-regulate their own stress response. Really, really important. And then, you know, your gut health becomes a, a really good way of measuring how well you're doing that as well. Nice. Yeah, amazing. There's lots of cool apps for that, I feel like. Is there? Um, I've had yeah, a few. Yeah, mm. I mean, even things, you know, like, oh gosh, some of the, you know, the um, binaural beats can work really well for that. But, you know, even just teaching somebody how to do resonance breathing, you know, where essentially you've got, um, you're inhaling for five, you're exhaling for five. And there's a good body of research behind that, that just practicing that a couple of times a day can really just regulate your stress response. And interestingly, because we all know that the pelvic floor is responsible for everything as well. Mm. There was a paper that came out <laughs> last year, um, Tatchell, I think was the name of the author, that showed that activating the pelvic floor muscles in conjunction with resonance breathing. Um, interestingly, they did it when you inhaled, they contracted the pelvic floor. And when you exhaled, you relaxed the pelvic floor. Doing that for six weeks had a notable effect on people's blood pressure. What? You know, you could actually measure Why a change it work in just that by way? doing breathing and pelvic floor contractions. Versus breathing alone? Just Yeah, versus... well, so resonance breathing was good. But when you added the pelvic floor contractions to the resonance breathing, it was even better. And I get really excited about things like that because, you know, heart disease is the biggest killer of women worldwide. And you know, almost every breast cancer survivor will die of heart disease. And mm. so things like that, that you, you know, are non-pharmaceutical that you can do for yourself. Um, I think it's just super exciting. I get really <laughs> jazzed every, about things like almost that. Almost every breast cancer survivor will die of heart disease. Yeah. I did not know that. No, I didn't know. That almost either. every woman, you know, it's the biggest heart disease is the biggest killer of women worldwide. Um, but because women, oh, you know, they have different presentations when they're having a heart attack, because obviously we've got different hormonal profiles up until menopause. We've got different micro architecture of our blood vessels. They're smaller. We just, we tend to have different presentations instead of just having the chest pain. 
we might tend to have chest pain plus breathlessness, anxiety, feeling very gassy. So we've got that. But then when you add in breast cancer treatment, um, whether that's with radiation or particularly some of the chemo drugs like adriamycin, they can be quite cardiotoxic as well. So heart disease is super important. And, you know, we, we know that, that exercise is a great way to slice 30% off your risk of heart disease straight away. So to find an exercise that's going to address your mental and your physical health. And you know what, a stat that I always come back to, you had the wonderful Jody Dakic on the podcast mm. uh, pretty recently. And I go back and I listen to that again and again. And I just, I, you know, I tell people that pelvic rehab can really save people's lives because if bladder or bowel or prolapse symptoms are a barrier to you moving, mm. we can address that and then get them back to moving again. And then that's going to be, you know, putting the movement back in bowel mm -hmm. movement, giving people a way of controlling their own stress and their physical activity. So it's everything everywhere all at once. Yeah. And for those people who are waiting to get in with a psychologist, because there's like an eight month wait list here to get in. Um, that's one of the first things when I saw mine for anxiety, um, that's the first thing that she got me doing was the resonance breathing. Um, and she talked about the vagus nerve, but I kind of went blank a little bit. Um, but she also uh, was talking about, I don't know, it was her, someone else gargling. Um, mm -hmm. And yep. the, I think I said this on another episode, but like humming. But at is, the yeah, I was going to say, is this why humming is good? Because I yeah, love but I got yeah. to say, but I wasn't allowed to sing a song. I had to hum at one level, and I was allowed to yes. go. And I was allowed to swear. <laughs> it's it's good. It's not at all disconcerting for the people in the room with you when you just start randomly humming. But there's actually, again, there's <laughs> research showing that yoga and breath work are particularly good at toning the vagus nerve. Um, and we think it is because of the branches going to the larynx and the pharynx. And because, you know, it's your neck is a relatively ah, small space. And that's been shown to, again, improve vagal tone. So for a lot of people, um, they may not uh, be comfortable with what they perceive as some of the spiritual connections with yoga. Mm. So instead, although the, a lot of the research talks about going, um, I just generally get people to hum, but like, a, you know, the resonance breathing and a long, slow, deep exhale, because when our voice is low, we know that kind of that lower prosody of our voice, again, is kind of sedative for the nervous system. And when it's really high and tight and fast and sharp, everything is just elevated that little bit. So that low, slow, deep hum, it's free. You don't need any special equipment for it. And you're just, again, you're taking control of that stress response. Um, and it's just, it's a wonderful tool. So what do you think about the, you know, I've gone to a few classes and truly I do really like it when they do the humming and the, and the, the noise making, cause it, I really do feel very relaxed, but they also sometimes have that dung and it's a really low vibe, yeah. vibe, yeah, vibration that you can feel through the room. I guess. You know what? I have, I have some friends who are, who are into sound baths and, and that sort of therapeutic application of it as well. It doesn't do much for me personally. Um, <laughs> I find it works better for me when I actually do the humming, when I make the noise myself. But I know lots of people really, really love and, you know, they have their own kind of, you know, their, their, their Tibetan bowls and their gongs <laughs> and things like that. And I think it's just anything that kind of takes your attention away from the everyday busyness as well and, and maybe some catastrophizing. And just has that capacity to bring you back into the present moment, you know, and your body. And whether that's noise or humming or movement or breath work, or I'm a big fan of actually just, you know, the little yoga tune-up balls or even those little foam golf practice balls, mobilizing your feet, like the plantar fascia, because mm. most of us are so dissociated from our feet. They're in, in shoes and socks all day. And, you know, we talk about feeling grounded as part of our stress mm. management. So I, I love to get people into their bare feet, mobilize their feet and their ankles. For me, that kind of um, active participation seems to work better than somebody like than being a passive recipient Doing of noise something. in the mm. room. Mm. 
It's always better to have self-management strategies. I don't think a gong is quite going to nail it, is it? <laughs> you know, horses for courses. If it works for you, <laughs> go for it. And now is this the polyvagal theory, this calming of the nerves? So polyvagal theory, and, you know, again, it's important to state that it is a theory. And, you know, we know what can happen to theories sometimes. Um <laughs> But polyvagal theory was really developed by Stephen Porges back in the 90s. And I find it, again, a really useful paradigm to explore when we're thinking about people with persistent pain, because it takes us beyond an understanding of the autonomic nervous system into just, you know, sympathetic, parasympathetic. So fight or flight, rest and digest. And it looks really at, at our sense of safety. So he talks about how we've got three vagal states. You've got, you know, you've got your dorsal, you've got your ventral state. And essentially ventral vagal state is where we live when we feel safe. We're open, we're communicative, we're safe. Our voice is low and soft and measured. And then we're exposed maybe to a threat, real or perceived. And we go into sympathetic and we've got our stress hormones are elevated, our muscle tension increases. And if the threat passes, we can go back into that ventral vagal state of calm, open communication. But if we're exposed to persistent threat or anxiety or danger, we can move into a dorsal vagal state. And that's essentially where we go numb, where we withdraw, we just dissociate it's like we've we've left the room we've left our body um and he talks about really being able ideally we should be able to go back and forth between ventral vagal and sympathetic you know something happens you know the the book by sapolsky why zebras don't get ulcers you know the zebras are all at the watering hole a crocodile jumps out of the water grabs a zebra all the other zebras run away but they dispel all that nervous energy and eventually they come back to the waterhole because they've gotten rid of that stressor. If we mm. can't get rid of that stress energy, we just, we, we just become overwhelmed with it. And we, again, we withdraw, we become numb. So what he talks about as a path back to that ventral vagal state is we have to move through that sympathetic state to get back to a ventral vagal state and one of the ways that we're now seeing um, some evidence emerge, people like Peter Levine or Bessel van der Kolk talk about how it's not just about talk therapy. We actually have to bring movement back in because that mm. nervous energy literally gets stored in our body. So we have to we have to do a Taylor Swift and shake it off mm. and then, you know, get back to that sense of safety. And that could be a sense of safety with our physio. It could be a sense of safety in our everyday lives. But that's where, as clinicians, we have to be aware of this paradigm of polyvagal theory. Like, what are we doing to, to bring that sense of safety, that therapeutic alliance into the mix? Because I think sometimes when we're super busy working with, with people who have persistent pain, we can forget that although we talk about, you know, vaginas and penises and the anus all day, every day, apparently normal people don't do that. And sure. we well, might have seen five or six okay. other people, you know, with pelvic health issues that day, but it could be the first time for that person coming in to see us. So people like Porges and, you know, collaborators like Deb Dana, they talk about how there's specific things that we as therapists can do to bring people into that ventral vagal sense of safety. And they talk about, you know, um, giving context to why you're doing what you're doing, um, giving the person a choice, we can do this or we can do this, and then really fostering that sense of connection, you know, making good eye contact, keeping our voice soft and low and slow, and making sure that we've got a, a safe environment, no really harsh overhead lights or loud noises. Um, because they talk about the importance of co-regulation. So as a therapist mm. working with somebody who's got persistent pain, whether that's due to a physical trauma or a mental trauma or a 
you know, a diagnosis like endometriosis, where maybe you've been gaslit for years. Um, it's up to us to have a really well-regulated nervous system ourselves so we can set the tone for the interaction. Um, because, you know, they talk about how with children, with small children or even babies, when they get upset, they look to usually their mother, you know, is it safe? Am I in danger or is it okay to calm down? And she sets the tone. So she co-regulates the baby or the child's nervous system. And in a way, there's a parallel to doing that for us, that if we're coming in with, you know, we're calm, we are confident, um, we're, we're in control of the situation, it's going to be okay, we have a plan, and we listen, and we create that sense of safety for them to tell their story. That goes a long way towards um, moving them back through that polyvagal pathway back into that ventral vagal state again. Amazing. How long, how long so does that take, do you think? Can you, can you shift someone? Oh, gosh, I think session? that's kind of like how long would it take would be like a piece of string question, unfortunately. Some mm. people, you know, I've had some people come in and we've probably all heard it. You know, you're the first person, you might be the first person to believe me, uh, particularly with mm. persistent pain diagnoses. You're the first person even to reproduce my pain you know, like doing some tissue work, because I, th I do think manual therapy has a, has a big role here as well. Um, mm. You're the first person to actually help move the needle. You know, you're the, you're the first person to acknowledge that my pain is real, that it's not all in my head. Because I think particularly, again, with pelvic pain, mm. and again, I'm going to say endometriosis in particular, um, we know it can take, you know, some of the research is saying up to 12 years to get the correct diagnosis and then begins the battle to get the correct treatment. And we still know that we know that about 40% of people still have pain after medical or surgical treatment. Um, I was at the World Endo Congress in Edinburgh in May, and it was really great to see this growing awareness of the importance of nutrition, because, you know, good gut health, but also physio played a really big role there. Um, but also acknowledging that central sensitization is a huge perpetuator of pain and distress. And surgery is not going to change that or you know, going on hormonal suppression is not going to change that. So we really, again, have to step away from being very organ-centric um, and even lesion-centric when it comes to endometriosis and just being able to take a step back and look at the whole person and, and acknowledge all the things that they've been through. And I think it's only once we do that that we can start to unravel um, the pieces and start to put things back together in a meaningful way. And it's about picking all the feeders into it, isn't it? For some people, it's yeah. terrible routine. They don't go to bed early enough. For others, it's the food more so. For others, it's they're not moving. It's so Absolutely. fun to pick it apart, isn't it? And figure out what it's great. And it's, it's just things. about finding one way that you can get your foot in the door and mm. just start making a difference. And then you start to get buy in. And then mm. we can start to work on some behavior change as well. And that's where having some coaching skills, you know, things like motivational interviewing or just recognizing readiness to change. Because mm. behavior change is hard, you know, especially when it's been protecting you for so long. So mm. it's to really make sure that you are trustworthy in this relationship as well. And um, you're not a mechanic coming in to fix them. Mm. You're, you're there kind of what you're coaching them through it. You're walking alongside them. And I think that's really vital for us to remember. And I think when we don't remember that, that's when we start to see really high rates of burnout and things like that in pelvic health. Mm. That's right, because you can't always fix it, can you? You can only help them manage it, help them know what they need to do. Yeah, to help. Absolutely. Manage it. Yes. Speaking of it. burnout, did you, um, when I was having my burnout episode last year, um, Someone had guided me towards Emily Nagoski, who wrote Come As You Are. She did one love. with her sister called Burnout. Did you read that or listen yes. to it? So I listened yeah, I to loved it. the audiobook, and she was talking about closing your stress response and pretty much exactly like what you were saying, how if you don't get that out, it's going to stay with you somewhere and you have to close that cycle. What do you, oh, it was, it was an amazing book. Um, 
we know that like the best form of closing the stress response cycle for a lot of people will be movement. And the best movement is something that somebody enjoys and wants to do and loves to do. Do you, so if you had someone who was open to doing anything and loved everything, is there a specific type of movement you would start with, with someone to get them be closing that stress response cycle? Like, is it more something that's slower and you're more about breathing or is it something that's a little bit faster or high intense? Is there any specific direction you would go? My, my personal preference is, is always to start with breath work because we have to breathe anyway. So to add in some breath work tools like the resonance breathing, uh, like alternate nostril breathing, um, Andrew Huberman's group just recently published a paper looking at the best type of breathing to modulate the stress response. And they said it was like a cyclical sigh. So that's where you inhale and then you sniff at the top and then you exhale out through the mouth. And I like to just modify that and have the exhale out be a hum. So we're, we're getting a little bit more bang for our buck. But that was shown, he compared that, I think, to, to box breathing and to resonance breathing and found really good outcomes in terms of stress response and, and insomnia, which I thought was interesting as well. Mm. I really like walking um, because, again, you don't need any equipment for us. If you can get outside for a walk in the morning, you're letting kind of the, the sunlight hit the back of your eyes. And that can be really helpful with resetting your circadian rhythm which is going to help you sleep that night, which is super important for anybody with central sensitization issues. Um, and particularly then if you can walk in a green space, because we know that some of that microbial content is going to come through in the air that we breathe in that enriched oxygen mm. atmosphere. So generally, you know, what I tell people is a, a 15 to 20 minute walk outside, ideally in nature every morning, as soon as you can after waking up. And the added benefit of that, of course, will be it's going to be good for your bowel health, too, because that's going to stimulate a little bit of bowel movement. So it's a win, win, win situation. And I, I try to get people, you know, to maybe not listen to a news podcast or to the radio while they're out walking. Um, but they call it naked walking. You're dressed, but you're just not listening to anything. Um, mm. Although, you know, you know, naked walking, like literally naked walking probably not work so well here in Ireland I just don't think we have the climate for it um but I sense Laurie for your next PhD like it could be it could be a possibility for you sorry you want me to go naked walking during my PhD I want yeah I think you should I think you should try some naked walking and just do some research on that and see how it works out oh actually research naked walking sorry I was like well but I walk naked all the time I've had to put clothes on because our neighbors raise their house and I usually my washing machines outside so I usually like <gasps> run outside um naked <laughs> so outside. what you have to do is just saunter outside enjoy like a stress-free naked saunter outside and just see how that works for your stress hormones you know they have <laughs> naked yoga here do they okay yeah. there's that would not yeah. I don't want to do that. One of my friends has done it. She <laughs> said it's really beautiful really? and she wants me to try it with her. I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm ready for that. They do little workshops here and there every once in a while. Naked Go yoga. Oh, I know I'm not ready we'll for that. I'm yeah. totally not. <laughs> also, you know. will pass. That will increase my stress response. <laughs> my stress do response just went up thinking you. about that. So yeah, that's a hard pass for me. Do something that scares you. I'll tag you guys in their Instagram because they've got a cute little Instagram too. <laughs> the, backs, okay. the backs of people they only ever show the backs and they don't Got really it. show they show people's faces if they want to but anyway we'll all do that in toronto is that right oh you guys aren't coming sorry. we will not be doing sorry. that in toronto that is incorrect <laughs> you'll be outside walking in nature breathing That's right. let's go alternating breathing through your nostrils that's what you'll do I love that idea around um, obviously we need to center ourselves, calm our own nervous system down before we go in with a patient. And you gave already a few tips, um, but I think that would be really helpful for our listeners because, um, you know, particularly the, the younger sort of pelvic health physios coming up, the taking on these pelvic pain cases it's a lot for mm -hmm. them um, and we always try and help them as much as we can with tips but I just have a feeling that you'll have some pearlers for them like how do they get centered so that they can do a good yeah. job I think the first thing to do is to make sure that you actually have that little cushion of time between patients 
Yeah. Um, because if we're rushing from one directly into the next without time to kind of, you know, almost debrief ourselves, we can't help but carry that in with us. Um, I think washing our hands is a really nice mm. kind of mindfulness exercise to do because, you you know, you have to do it anyway, obviously. But to really kind of focus on just that concept of letting that patient go and their story go, acknowledging it and then parking it. And, and literally when you're finished, just to, to shake, you know, we know that just kind of, again, to quote the, the great sage, Taylor Swift, um, just shaking it off, a few deep, slow breaths, and really kind of feeling our feet on the ground. It sounds, again, it sounds too simple to be effective, but just literally getting back into our own bodies again, leaving that past experience, centering ourselves, and then getting ready to move forward. Um, there's there's a yoga writer that I like, Amy Weintraub, and she says that, um, you know, our bodies are always present, but the mind is a great time traveler. So what we want mm. to do is we want to stop the mind dwelling on maybe a past patient or worrying about what's going to happen next and just being really present with ourselves first before we can go in and hope to be present with somebody else. Um, if you can go get a glass of water, you know, just really basic self-care things that sometimes when we are under pressure, because, you know, we're all just trying to help people live well, we're all doing our best to try and, you know, get people out of pain and out of distress. But, you know, again, it's, it's a cliche for a reason, but you literally cannot pour from an empty cup. So you need to make sure that you're putting energy mm. back into your system as well. Are you eating well? What are you doing for exercise? How's your sleeping? Um, what are you doing for fun as well? And getting some energy back into your own system means that you have a little bit more resilience to deal with what can be incredibly challenging cases um, in a pelvic health caseload. Bit broader, but again, I just feel like your wisdom is going to come up with something brilliant here. On a public health level, so there's, we know so much about gut health and we know so much about nutrition. And yet we look around and I'm just constantly sad about how mm -hmm. people are treating their bodies and what they're putting into them and what they're feeding their children. And I just think, but we know, we just, we know that that is not good. Why are you doing that? I just um, am interested on your ideas around behaviour change at a public health level. Yeah. So this this is my love language here because I, I was that person going, but why, why won't you do what I'm telling you to do? <laughs> and it was really affecting me uh, deeply. Um, so I went back and I did a postgrad in health coaching and in oh. nutrition as well. But health coaching is, is all about fostering behavior change, but also taking a step back from the, the classic physio approach of trying to fix everybody. So coaching is really about meeting people where they are and asking them what their goals are for themselves. And then using tools like, you know, this is the trans theoretical readiness to change model. There's all these big fancy words out there, but essentially asking people, okay, so what is your wellness vision for yourself? You know, where do you remember a time in your life when you felt really well and healthy? OK, and what were you doing? Build me a picture of what you were doing, you know, that that maintains that for you. OK, now, what do you think you need to get back to that again? And so then we can start reverse engineering it. So the prom the premise of health coaching is that the person already has all the answers and what our job is to do is to give them enough space to allow them to kind of bring them forth. Um, instead of getting super excited, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, and you need to do this. And why aren't you doing them? And it's about kind of, okay, well, let's set some goals, you know, and we can use, you know, the acronym, you know, the SMART goal setting framework where they're specific, measurable, actionable, you know, all that stuff as well. But it's about asking people what their goals are. And, you know, what would it take to get you there and how on a scale of zero to 10, you know, how successful do you think you're going to be getting back to that again? 
And if it's below a seven out of 10 confidence wise in terms of achieving your goals, okay, so what would it take to give you more confidence around that? And they will say, well, look, I just don't know how to fit in exercise into my schedule. Okay, so let's have a look at that. Let's have a look at your schedule and we'll see what we could do to, you know, but it's very much driven by the person, not by the Mm. physio. And it wrecked my head when I started doing it first, because I'm used to being the one saying, okay, so you can do this and then you can do this and getting really excited and talking a lot. And the thing with coaching is you actually have to be quiet a lot and you have to let the other person, you have to be really comfortable with silence Mm. and letting the person start to come up with some ideas for change. And then when they come back in to see you for their follow-up sessions, um, I've changed my, the questioning. So people come into the rooms like, hi, how are you? And they sit down. And instead of me asking you, so how are you? Which kind of, oh, oh you know, awful, terrible. I, I start off by asking, so what went well this week? And it mm. automatically kind of reframes the conversation. Well, I was, you know, I was able to, I got more salads in this week. I did a little bit of batch cooking on Sunday and that set me up for a couple of days couple of slips you know along the way but overall the trajectory is good and then we can kind of build on that positive energy and Mm. honestly I think that really saved my mental health and particularly working in a a cancer rehab setting um, Mm. where there can be a lot of despair and anxiety and dealing with the after effects particularly you know after active treatment ends people are kind of cut off from that support system of the chemo nurse and going to see the oncologist and they're kind of left adrift and it can be really scary. And so this is a great way to take them from being that passive recipient of things being done to them um, because they can still have, you know, just because you've had breast cancer doesn't mean you didn't have pelvic pain or incontinence or any of the other things, you know, that, that everybody else is dealing with. So it kind of gives them a little bit of autonomy and self-efficacy and an understanding as well that they're not doing things for my benefit. They're doing it for their own benefit. And so I can coach them and I can point them in the right direction for resources. But at the end of the day, they're back in the driver's seat again. And it's, it was just, it really transformed me and hopefully them as well. Fuck, you're brilliant. Yeah, you yeah. are, aren't you? <laughs> no, I can listen no. to you. I want to do. I want to do everything. I'm going to put links for everything that yeah, Michelle has do, because she's kind. amazing. Look, I'm coming to Australia in. I'll be in Sydney in August. So, oh. if you're around, what? What are you doing? What are you doing? Yeah, here? what are you doing? Where's my um, um, I've been doing a little bit of work with FIFA, so for their women's health statement for um, female footballers. So I'm coming out for the World Cup final. No, Ooh, I thought that was I thought that was a new yeah. nickname for Fiona. I was like, do you call her FIFA now? <laughs> <laughs> that we should take that. Fiona though, Rogers will kill you when she hears I this, know. You know this story. Okay? I do know that. I didn't say the one word. I said FIFA. That's two words. Sort of, not two words. Anyway, you, you know, know you're what I'm still in about. trouble. Still in trouble. But um, okay. What is the controversy around the Vegas nerve? Because I know that like and I, I don't know if controversy is the right term, but I think there's a weird energy around that. Yeah. Just the use of that term. So wh- where is that coming there, from? Because people are selling a lot of products mm-hmm. to um, improve your vagal tone. Um, it's kind of like, oh gosh, you know, if you're on Instagram and you can see like some of the OBGYN influencers have lots to say about uh, gadgets like Perifit, for example, or, you know, different things that are designed to help people. Because there's a whole industry essentially building up around the Vegas and vagal toning and people selling products. That's, I think, where the controversy is because you don't need products. You actually have, it's like Glinda the Good Witch in The Wizard of Oz. You actually have the power all along to start improving Mm -hmm. your own vagal toning. Um, Uh, All the things that we talked about, you know, breath work, humming, Mm. yoga, movement, dealing with any constipation issues, eating a few more plants, um, having that sense of safety. You know, what can you do to create a sense of safety in your own self? Um, And sometimes it's literally just practicing some grounding exercises. Um, 
I had um, I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Alex Millspaw on the podcast um, with her new book about her book, Hello Down There. It's called about psychological tools, again, for building that sense of safety and self-reliance, particularly for people who've got ongoing pelvic health issues. So the controversy is when people try to cash in, I think, on other people's problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really not necessary to do that. Um, because this is where we can, you know, by having conversations like this, we can actually show people how to help themselves without going out and spending a fortune on things they don't really need. It's a problem when what we do is cheap, you know, and, you know, and that's, that's, yeah, interesting, isn't it? It's, it's, yeah, but I think also it's our job to shout a little bit louder about what it is Mm. that we can do. Because people selling products are out there. Um, again, you know, they're, they're talking and shouting quite loudly. And I think mm. as physios, I think that's part of one of our kind of common, L, common personality traits is we don't like to shout too loud about the great things that we can do that are low tech, low cost, but super effective and evidence-based. So I think, you know, yeah. the onus is really on us to um, to kind of step up our communication skills maybe a little bit as well and um, and to talk about all the things that people can do to help themselves. Yeah, you're free. right. I even had one in the other day talking about the stimulating of the, the vagus nerve. I wasn't quite sure what it was. I feel like it was some sort of frequency buzzer of some form, but yeah. um, <laughs> gosh, what you just covered with this one episode that I thought was just going to be about, you know, this nerve. (laughs) It's just, again, there's so much that I think people will get out of this that we'll leave it at that. But it's your, I think you're the first person to come back for the third. No, maybe Fiona, you guys are like competing against each other about how many times you've been on this Mm -hmm. podcast. Um, So I know that I will have you back and I cannot wait to continue to listen to yours and that everyone, if they don't know, is going to go listen to yours and all the wonderful stuff that you do. And hopefully I will see you when you get here. And if not, I will see you in Toronto at ICS as well. Can't wait. (laughs) See girls, you need to come. Oh Oh, man, I love her. I love her. Oh my God. She knows a lot, doesn't she? That's why I didn't send her questions. I'm like, we don't need Mm. to send her questions. She'd be fine. What is the vagus nerve? (laughs) Pretty much, pretty much the question. um, Laurie, I love your hair out. Looks really nice tonight. Oh, I straightened it. Well, I straightened it. It's different. Normally it's like on top of your head or something. Usually it's curly. Yeah, oh, it's curly. She's got curly, it's curly hair. But I straightened oh, it so because I've it. gone. It's got like a wave in it. I've gone pink again. Remember? Yeah, yeah it just looks really nice. Anyway, Thanks. I just wanted to say that before I forgot. Thanks. It's because <laughs> I'm going to bed. It's my bed. My bed hairstyle. Um, and how cool that this conversation that we had ties so well into some conferences coming up in Brisbane in October on the 27th. Well, cool, Laurie. I mean, so cool. this conference is covering all bases, right? So I know just of endometriosis. That- Too bad we didn't fly her from Ireland to come. Too bad we didn't. Maybe she needs Shit. to be in like a Zoom. We still could. <laughs> or we can yeah. like, I don't know, maybe we can, yeah, either fly her. Well, she's going to be here in August. Or like Zoom her in like you did with Yana Pittman for the other one. We could mm. zoom her in. Yeah. We could anyway. definitely zoom her in. That's mm. a thought. But the, the yeah. panel, you could have her head there. She'd be great. Mm. Okay. See, food for thought, guys. Yeah. Just yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. brilliant. <laughs>